Please open God's Word with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We'll be looking at 24 to 30 here. And here in Mark, we find a most unusual encounter between Jesus and a Gentile woman. Now, by means of an outline, this is as close as you're going to get, okay? Here it comes. This encounter takes place in an unusual location, and this encounter is initiated by an unlikely intercessor, and that unlikely intercessor then meets with a most unsettling response from Jesus. And then this encounter ends with an undeniable commendation. So in this text, we have an unusual location, an unlikely intercessor, and an unsettling response, and an undeniable commendation. Let's look at the text, beginning in verse 24. And from there, Capernaum, he arose, that is Jesus, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of the children. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Verse 26 speaks of a very unique woman engaged in a very unique act. She's falling down at the feet of Jesus and begging him. And implied in the word begging there, or begged, is it was a constant, incessant, persistent begging. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. It continued. Mark says it this way. Matthew says basically she's crying out all the time. That's what's being implied here. So when we read this very unique narrative here in Mark, what we need to understand is Everything that takes place here is unusual, and let me add, it is intentional. Intentional. The entire encounter here is part of Jesus' sovereign plan, and it's filled with important lessons for his disciples and for us. Here in this section, we are introduced, like I said, to this very interesting woman. We're introduced to a Gentile woman who will be used by God to show his disciples and us the nature of genuine saving faith. She's a picture of it. Now, this encounter begins, as I said, with Jesus going to, number one, a most unusual location there in verse 24. And from Capernaum, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now remember what's going on here from our previous text. Remember that Jesus has just been previously engaged in a conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. And it was a conflict over the true source of where man's defilement came from. And he made it very clear. It doesn't come from without. It comes from within the heart. The heart of man 
is woefully and wickedly depraved. And now he, he takes his disciples from that conflict. He takes them now to a place that is no less controversial, a Gentile region. And now, partly what he's doing here, he's taking them there to, to find rest, the rest that he's been searching for for them and for himself since the feeding of the 5,000. He's taking them there also, though, to train them further in their future ministry and what is entailed in that. And so this location and, and this this encounter will prove to be, for them, a great teaching moment. Here, just as he has finished declaring something radical in the eyes and the ears of the Jews, he's declaring that all foods are now clean, and he's correcting the Pharisees and the scribes by removing the distinction between clean and unclean foods. Right then and there, he now takes them into the place that no one thought he would go, into a Gentile region to further correct the Pharisees and scribes. He's going there in part to correct the error of the Pharisees and scribes and their views about who, not what, but who was clean and unclean in God's sight and who can receive God's mercy. And so he does that by giving them a visual illustration. He enters into what the Jews considered an unclean Gentile land. Now, this is not what the Jews would have expected from their Messiah. The region of Tyre and Sidon was really the region and the hub of all Gentile paganism at the time. The worship of Astarte or Astaroth was there conceived and there engaged in by those who are part of this region. It was an idolatrous, wicked region. And so the trip into this region would have been unimaginable to any Jew, especially the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus knows that. It's partly why he's going there. I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they expected their Messiah to come in and remove the Gentiles, not reach out to them, much less show them mercy. But that's what happens in this story. So understand that Jesus is going there into this region intentionally, to illustrate something to them. He's going there to illustrate to them that the power of the gospel to draw all men to himself by faith is through him. He is the source, the object of that faith. Be it Jew or Gentile, the power of the gospel will draw all men to him by faith. That's a lesson the disciples would need to understand, to grab hold of, in order to prepare them for their future mission. And that's partly the reason that Jesus goes here. Here, here in this region, here's what happens. He, he's, he's getting away. Remember what's happening? Everywhere he goes, there's a crowd following, right? He, he's going there partly to get away from the crowd so that he could rest. But mainly, I think, he's going there to keep his disciples together and privately teach them further. And we know that these guys needed a bit more tutoring, didn't they? Yes, they did. But they didn't know that that tutoring would start immediately. Immediately. Because what happens here is, even though Jesus wants to go there privately and quietly and unnoticed, that wouldn't happen. It's not possible. Because the news of his greatness and grace has been spreading from the beginning. If you remember earlier, back in Mark 3, we, we learned that there were people from Tyre and Sidon there 
hearing him teach and witnessing do the miracles that he did. And so the news about him was now spreading through those who were there at that time into this region, this unclean Gentile land. So so his presence in that region would not remain hidden or secret very long. And we see that in verse 25. In verse 25, we, we learn that the news of Jesus' teaching and his miracles had made their way to a most unlikely intercessor, a desperate and heartbroken mother. Look at verse 25 again. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter, little daughter is speaking with the preciousness of this child, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, she heard of him, it says, and came and fell down at his feet. So, so when this woman... Here's the news about Jesus and that he is nearby. What happens? She immediately is drawn to him. Well, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, it happens by God's grace. She's drawn to him through the testimony of Christ. She's drawn to him as John 6, 37 says, by the father. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So. When this woman finds out where Jesus is, she seeks him. She seeks him. If you know anything about Romans chapter 3, you know that no one seeks for God on their own. Not one. So who's at work here? God. Now, just picture this scene in your minds if you were there, okay? What would this have been like? If you're there with Jesus and the disciples, here's what's going on. You're there, you're finally away from the crowd, and you're like, yes, we can finally sit down at the feet of Jesus and be uninterrupted, right? We can hear him teach. And we're having to borrow somebody's house to do this, but it's okay. They've let us have the run of the place, right? So you're there in this stranger's home, resting and relaxing with Jesus. And then suddenly, immediately, a desperate woman busts in and falls down at Jesus' feet Begging him, begging him on behalf of her daughter. Now, this seems very inappropriate, especially to a Jew, okay? It would be inappropriate, it seems, in our culture too, right? You come busting into my house unannounced, I don't know you. That's weird. You may not be greeted well. But why did she do this? Well, think about the situation. I mean, I can understand why she did this. Listen, (laughs) when a parent's child is in trouble, all... Courtesy goes out the window. You do whatever it takes to save that child. Her daughter was in torment, possessed by a demon, enslaved by a demon, suffering because of a demon. And and she, the woman, the mom, she has tried everything to be rid of this, remove this from her life. But none of her pagan religions could do this. None of her practices from Astaroth could do this. She had no hope in them any longer. And she had no hope at all in this world until the Son of God appears in the most unlikely of places, a Gentile territory. Now, we don't have a lot of information about this woman, but what we do have, I think, is important. But we need to ask ourselves something about her because in many ways we're a lot like her. What kind of woman was she? Well, she was a desperate and longing for mercy mother. Beyond that, this woman was a Gentile of Gentiles. So look at her sad credentials in verse 26. None of this is for her. It's all against her, by the way. The woman who fell down at his feet says, Now the woman was a Gentile, 
a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The point of that little biography there is to show us that this woman was without hope in this world. She had nothing to commend her. Everything was against her here. First off, she was a woman. It was a woman that came and fell at his feet, and she had no right as a woman to approach a Jewish rabbi in this manner. She didn't care. Her daughter was in trouble. She had heard he is the source of hope. So she threw off her social conventions. Secondly, she was a Gentile pagan. Her upbringing would be defiled by idolatry and wickedness. Beyond that, she was also a Syrophoenician. Matthew tells us she was a Canaanite. So she had nothing to boast in regarding her heritage. So here's what's happening. But before coming to Jesus that day, here's what she knew about herself. She knew what Paul knew about all of us apart from Christ, that she was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So when she comes to Jesus, she knows she's got nothing to offer him. There's no heritage. There's no prestige. There's nothing righteous about her. So how does she come to Jesus? Like every sinner must come to Jesus as a beggar, bowing at his feet, falling down before him and confessing her great need of Jesus to Jesus. This 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 encounter here, it was no accident. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't coincidence. It certainly wasn't luck. Everything that happens here has been planned by God from eternity. And the genuineness of her faith, I think, reveals that. The quality of her faith reveals that, which is what we see again back in verse 25. What does she do? What does she do? She comes to Jesus with the only thing she had, and that was a gift of faith. His gift, the one that God had given through the hearing of Jesus, knowing who he is and what he's done. She came with what she had been given. She had heard faithful words about Christ and his work. As Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So she comes with what she's been given. You told me who you are through the testimony of others. I believe it. I'm coming to my only source of hope. She's coming in true saving faith to the source of salvation. Like I said, she'd probably heard about Jesus through the testimony of those in Mark 3, but realize what she heard. It had to be encouraging. It had to be something that stirred her heart, that God used to soften this pagan woman's heart. <laughs> she knows she's unworthy. She knows she's defiled. She knows she is unclean. She is a Gentile. But she hears about Jesus healing an unclean leper, one that no one could touch. He embraced And she hears about Jesus then delivering the demoniac, one who is controlled and enslaved by a demon, multiple ones. And then she hears about a little child, Jairus' daughter, being raised from the dead, given life. There's hope in this woman because of this testimony of Christ. So here's what we know in that. God was at work. God was the one who was drawing her to look to Christ because 
She now saw through his testimony that he is the only source of mercy and hope to the unworthy. So she comes. She comes by faith. She comes boldly. And she's the one who initiates the encounter, the conversation with Jesus. And how does she do it? She comes by falling in homage and honor to Jesus, falling at his feet and interceding on behalf of her daughter. This woman had to be one of the most unlikely intercessors the disciples had ever seen. She was one of the most unlikely because her approach to Jesus testified that she was truly repentant. A sign of genuine saving faith. How do we know that? Well, she had to turn away from trusting in her pagan beliefs and her upbringing. And she was now turning to Jesus. Look how she approaches him. She bows. She bows and basically says, Jesus, only you can help me. So what's that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is the object of her faith. Matthew 15 helps us a little bit here. Let's go there. Matthew 15. It's the parallel passage to this. Matthew 15, beginning in verse or just reading verse 22, actually. You can see how she came to him, how intense this was and how unique and unlikely her coming would be. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. It means continually Crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Don't don't let those words escape you. The words that she used. No one else was using these words of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Peter wouldn't even use these words until after her testimony later by God's revelation. But she identifies him. She comes down turning to him, recognizing him as Lord and Messiah. O Lord, son of David. So her faith was being expressed here through repentance and reverential worship of Jesus. Repentance of sin and reverential bowing before him in adoration, trusting in him. She had turned her back on the idols of her life. And she was now calling on Jesus as her Lord and even identifying him as the son of God, the son of David, rather, the Messiah. So, so it reminds me much when I, when I see the way she approaches Jesus as an unlikely intercessor for her daughter. It reminds me much of how the leper approached Jesus. How did he do that? By bowing down before him and pleading his case in humility and worship, relying on his mercy And his authority, his power to cleanse. That's what she's doing here. But stay in Matthew for a second. We're going to read further in 23 to 24. Because what happens next is really hard to understand. Because her actions in relation to Jesus' response seem out of place. And it seems to confuse the disciples who were easily confused anyway. But this certainly confused them. And I understand why it would. Look at verse 23. After she comes pleading, crying, begging, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. It says, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
I was only sent to the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This isn't exactly encouraging to hear and to witness at first glance. I mean, Jesus' silence and even the words that he speaks here seem, at least to the disciples, I think, seem to agree with the Pharisees' assessment of the Gentiles. But notice, even Jesus' silence and words, they don't stop this woman from pleading and pressing in. This, again, is a revelation of her faith in Christ because it reveals that she is persistent. True saving faith, genuine saving faith is persistent faith. It presses in when pressed upon. That takes us back to Mark, to the house. Everyone is in with bated breath, waiting to find out what's going to happen next. Everyone in this house in Mark 7, everyone there is absolutely in shock over what has just happened as this woman entered the premises. And you know, they, they hear her begging and pleading like this. And, and you can see back there in Matthew, they didn't know what to do with that. They're like, okay, get rid of her, right? But, but what they're waiting for is what's Jesus going to say. They're on pins and needles waiting to hear how Jesus will respond to her. And that leads us to Jesus' most unsettling response in this encounter. Just look at his response to her in verse 27. It is absolutely shocking to hear these words from the mouth of Christ to such a desperate mother. After she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter, it says that he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Wow. No one in that house expected to hear that from the lips of Jesus. No one. I mean, they would have expected to hear that, and it would have been appropriate and acceptable to hear that if if he was talking to the Pharisees. But to call this woman, this desperate and broken-hearted mother, to call her a dog, that just seems extreme. That's his point. But to be really clear here, I think I need to explain something to you. Some of you know this. There There are two Greek words that refer to dogs In the New Testament, both are insulting. Both were levied at Gentiles from Jews intentionally to insult them. But the first one refers to a vicious scavenger dog that lived off the garbage in the streets. That's the typical word that the Jews would use to refer to a Gentile with. But then there's the other word and refers to a household pet. And that, that, that word was used less because it was rare for people to actually be able to afford to own a dog and keep it as a pet in their home. So it was reserved usually for the wealthy. But the word that Jesus uses here is that word. He uses the word that refers to household pets. That really doesn't soften it that much, though, does it? Considering her desperate plea for mercy, this still seems... Harsh. So, so why would Jesus respond to this woman, this desperate woman? Why would he respond to her request this way? Well, let's just be really, really clear. It's not because he doesn't he doesn't care about her. It does, it's not because he, he's mean spirited. We know that that's not true. We know that he is full of mercy and grace and wisdom, though. So what does his response tell us? 
Well, his, his response is built on this illustration that he gives. And both the, the response and the illustration are, are really, in, in reality, a, a merciful gift to her. There's a merciful pur- purpose and point to this. And here's what it is. His response is a test. It's a test of the genuineness of her faith. His illustration is is of a family meal gathered at a table, right? With the little pet dog underneath eating the crumbs. And and in this illustration, what's he do? He, He compares the woman to the pet dogs under the table who get fed the leftovers. They would actually, I mean, listen, it's kind of like living in the South. They didn't have napkins, right? They had bread. And they would eat their food, take a piece of bread at the end, wipe their hands off on it, and then toss it to the dogs under the table. So he, he compares her to the dog who gets fed the leftovers. It still seems like a shocking way to respond to this hurting mom. And it was. But he intended that shocking statement to do something. It was to reveal the truth about her faith. Because here's what Jesus knows. He knows the heart of men, first of all. But he also knows what men do when they're confronted in their sin. He knows that when people are called out as being sinners, defiled, unbelieving, he knows that most people, most people take offense at that and immediately leave. As did the Pharisees in Mark 7, 6 to 13, when Jesus called them out. They didn't stick around. They didn't like what they heard. They were greatly offended Matthew tells us, but not this woman. She wasn't offended. Why, why isn't she offended? She's been, just been called an unclean dog because it was a true assessment of her life. She believed the words of Christ. So here we, we see that this unsettling response to her, as I said, was a test of faith. But... In her unimaginable reaction, we see that she passed the test. I mean, what happens next in verse 28 is absolutely phenomenal. It's it's mind-blowing how she takes the words of Christ and understands them more fully than any disciple did at that time. And then she brings them back up to Christ and says, Yeah, you said something, but you had a loophole in it. I caught it, Jesus. There's hope for me here. You thought you were pressing me into a corner to expose me for who I am. And now I want you to know I am yours. I hear what you're saying. I mean, her her reaction to Jesus's statement, I think, is is even more shocking than his statement itself. It's more shocking because she understands the illustration and she reacts with a humble affirmation of it. Look at verse 28. But she answered him. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Hmm. Now listen, this, this reaction would be absolutely unimaginable unless God's gift of faith was present in this woman's life. Unrepentant sinners don't respond to the confrontation of their sin in this manner. Her reaction here is, I think, a a brilliant display of faith because, like I said, she believes every word that Jesus said. So her faith is evidenced here first by her humble admission of her unworthiness. I am a dog, Jesus. You got it right. 
I'm not worthy to be in your presence, but here I am. Here I am because you're my only hope. And in the rest of what he said, she heard something else. She heard with the ears of faith. She she heard that there's hope even for the unworthy dog. There's hope being held out to me in what you just said. I caught it. I caught it. I understand the illustration. I understand your point, but I caught your hope. I see the mercy in it. By faith, she understood that Jesus is making an appropriate distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles in this illustration. And he's making that clear and he's making clear the priority of his messianic ministry and mission. The gospel was to be proclaimed first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul said it this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. She got that before Paul wrote it. She's getting it because Jesus said it. That's what he's saying in verse 27. So she understands his point. She gets it. She understands the children of Israel must be fed first. And she humbly accepts the, the reality of who she is, an unworthy dog. She's, she's not offended, though. She's not arguing his point. She's not leaving the house hurt, offended. Now, look what she does. She seizes upon the word of Christ, the word first in verse 27. First, first, one word makes a difference in a text, saints. One word from Christ makes a difference in your life. We see that here. She clings to the word first there in verse 27 because she understands Jesus' choice of that word. That word held out hope for the unworthy. And her unimaginable reaction to his words, I think, again, are both brilliant and glorious there in verse 28. Here's my paraphrase. She says, yes, Lord, I agree. I am a Gentile dog, not worthy of your mercy. Yes, Lord. Yet, yet, I caught what you said. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She understands she is not first in line for mercy. But she also understands that his words meant that she's not excluded from his mercy either. So she says, I hear you, Jesus. You must fulfill your ministry in Israel first. So that, that must mean that I am not excluded from the overflow of that mercy, like the dogs under the table. That's what's going on here. His test of her faith is bringing out the reality of the gift that God has given to her. She believes the assessment of her soul from the Savior, and she also believes the hope that is extended to her by the Savior. There's mercy still more in Christ. Yes, Israel gets it first. The nation gets it first through my ministry, through my work, but it's extending into the world, and you're going to get some. You're not just going to get some crumbs, by the way. She gets exactly what she is pleading for in this narrative. So I hope that helps you better understand Jesus's most unsettling response here, because this this response wasn't designed to push her away, though. If she was an unbeliever, it would have. Instead, it has an opposite purpose. It was meant to reveal that his gift of faith is what caused her to cling to him more tightly. 
Basically, this woman is a female version of Jacob in the Old Testament who said, I won't let you go until you bless me. That's what's going on here. This is perseverance. This is persistent pleading. This is the gift of faith in action here. You remember in in Matthew, if you've read that ahead of me a little bit, in Matthew 15, you remember what Jesus says about this woman's faith, don't you? He said that this woman had great faith. Look back there quickly. Matthew 15, verse 25. He speaks of her as one who had great faith. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Notice that she shifts and attaches this need to her own self, not just her daughter. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Now, understand something so we get this clear in our minds. Greatness here does not refer to the quantity of her faith, but the quality of her faith. It was genuine. It was true, saving faith. Jesus calls her faith great because it was objective. Her faith was fixed on the truth about who Jesus is and what he alone could do. She knew, obviously, in her confession here, she she knew that she wasn't coming to a mere man, but rather the son of God. She knew she was coming to the one who had healed the sick, forgiven sinners, cleansed the leper and raised the dead. She knew who she was coming to. He was the object of her faith. That's why it was great. Faith was also great because it evidenced true repentance. She had turned from the pagan upbringing and idolatry that she was raised in, to Christ as her only hope. Her faith was great because it evidenced worshipful reverence for Jesus. She didn't come to Jesus demanding anything of him. She didn't come demanding his mercy. Instead, she latched on to his mercy, despite what was against her, because she believed that Jesus was her Lord and Messiah, her Savior, the Anointed One. That brings salvation to the world. Her faith was great because it evidenced dependence on Jesus. Her intercession expressed humble desperation and her own unworthiness. Yet she was expressing that to say that I depend on your mercy and your authority to give me what I most desperately need at this time. She depended on him, trusted in him humbly. Her faith was great because it evidenced persistence when tested by Jesus. The quality of her faith was marked out by her unyielding confidence in his authority and mercy to act on her behalf. And when she was tested, what happened? She drew nearer to Jesus, trusting in his greatness and the surplus of his grace. Church, what made her faith Great in Jesus' sight was that she believed what she had heard from him and about him as meager as it was. And she turned in faith to him, trusting in his power and mercy, even when he was silent and seemingly distant. She persevered. So what should her response to Jesus' test 
teach us today? A lot, right? First of all, though, it should remind us that when we come to God in prayer and it seems like our prayers go unanswered and we want to give up, don't. Don't. Persevere. Persevere and instead of giving up, draw nearer to Jesus like this woman did and keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking because Jesus doesn't offer those who come to him in faith the crumbs of his mercy. He has promised to feed us what we need most from the bountiful feast of his grace. We're not coming to a mere man, but the son of God who will hear the humble and contrite, even though it seems like he doesn't. I think Jesus's undeniable commendation of her faith reveals that he heard her and he's going to answer. Mark seven twenty nine. After hearing her brilliant response and reaction to his test, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, look, we don't get to hear the tone of Jesus's voice here. We can't see his facial expression here, but but I think it's safe. I think it's safe to assume that his countenance expressed great joy over the statement he has just heard from this woman who testified that the faith that he had given her is real and is going to be the answer that she needed most. Not simply the healing of her daughter. She needed salvation. So I think it's evident that that. His countenance was full of joy here because of what happens next. He immediately commends her. He commends her faith and he grants her request that very moment. Look at that. He says, you may go your way. The demon has right then, right there, right at that moment been removed. It's left. It's left your daughter. She didn't get the crumbs. She got the feast. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone. Behold the authority and mercy of the Son of God toward the unworthy. That's what we're seeing here. We need to learn from this woman. We need to look to Christ like this woman. Here's some things to take away this morning. Saints, remember this woman's faith when unyielding trials flood your life. Remember this woman's faith when your prayers seem to go unanswered. Remember her humble dependence and her persistent pleading. More specifically, parents, parents, look to this woman's faith when it comes to interceding for your children. There's a lesson here in prayer for us. Listen, we we know We know as much as we want to change our children's hearts, we in ourselves can't do it. But one thing we can do is persistently pray to the God who is able. So parents, remember this woman when you intercede for your children. And remember that this this woman's prayer. Remember this. This is very important, very critical. Remember that this woman's prayer at first seems to go unanswered. It seems to be refused. But what happened? She didn't give up. She just kept on pleading in faith and trusting in Christ's mercy. So parents, continue praying persistently, even when it appears that God is silent. Saints, he's not silent. 
And he is not uncaring. He hears us. And this woman's faith and her testimony teach us that. They teach us that the prayers of God's people to him, pleading and interceding on behalf of others, they are not ignored. No matter what it seems like at the moment, his silence could be and probably is a test. But understand this, he is faithful and he is good and we can trust him for the outcome of that test. We can trust him because he's the only one. Get this, praying parent, get this. He is the only one who can give you the desire of your heart in prayer to petition on behalf of the salvation of your children. He's the only one who gives you that. No one else can give you that. He's the one who gives you that. And listen to this. He ordained our prayers to be an expression of his own desires. Take joy in that. He has given you the desire of your heart to intercede for your kids because that's what his desire is. That none would perish, but all would come to eternal life and faith in Christ. And so petition, plead with your children, express love to them, and be patient and wait upon the Lord. That's what this woman had to do in this moment. It seemed like an eternity to her. But remember, Jesus was arranging this whole unusual encounter in Mark 7. So saints, keep on praying in faith for the one who has the power to answer And the one alone who has the mercy and grace to offer. He will hear us when we cry out for others like this woman did. Here's one thing we can learn from that in her example. True faith doesn't shrink back when it's tested. Instead, it draws us nearer to Christ. So so draw near to the one who went to the cross for the unworthy to grant us mercy so that We can, as Hebrew says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. So saints cling to him and cling to the promise of Hebrews, cling to that word of promise. Because Mark 7 and I think one old Puritan makes it very clear that there is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. The Gentile woman in Mark 7 understood that. And saints, if if this woman was convinced of that, convinced of Jesus's power and mercy and grace before he even displayed it in its fullness at the cross, how much more convinced of his mercy and grace should we be this side of the cross? Because at the cross, we find God's greatest revelation of his mercy and grace to the unworthy. It's not table scraps. He offers it freely to his children. Let's pray and give him thanks this morning for the Syrophoenician woman's testimony. Heavenly Father, we thank you for really the testimony of your grace that we see in the Syrophoenician woman's life. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the greatness of your mercy that is extended to Gentiles, unbelievers. That we can look to Christ and find what we need most satisfied, which is our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, and through that be granted access to your throne of grace to help us in our time of need. Pray that you'd help us dwell on these things, meditate on these things, and exalt Christ by believing these things. In Jesus' name, amen.